I have lots of different people that I go to. And I think that board of directors that you mentioned is really important. It's not the only social capital, but that's, I think, social capital primarily outside of your work, out of your specific job, that's important for you to build over time so that you get outside perspectives, if nothing else. Sometimes in your workplace, you get very locked into a certain way of thinking or a certain style, and it's important to get perspective from outside. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and this is a free coaching session with an experienced and established tech executive in Asia Pacific to help us understand, reflect, and think about our future in a post-global pandemic era. With me today, Eliza Knox, a well-known technology business operator in Asia Pacific and someone I highly respect, and now she's an author of a new book, Don't Quit Your Day Job. Eliza, welcome back to my show. And it has been a long time since we have both spoken on this podcast. Bernard, thank you so much for having me on again. It has been a long time since we've spoken on the podcast, but fortunately not a long time since we've spoken. But it's always great to be with you. Yes, it's, it's always been great to speak to you and also getting your advice on anything relating to careers. But when we last spoke publicly, you were leading Twitter Asia Pacific. So what has transpired since then till now? Wow, that was a while ago. Let's see. After five great years at Twitter, I went to a small startup for six months, concluded that it wasn't the right fit. It was a basically online media and mobile ad platform. And while I was figuring out what to do next, thinking I might basically focus on boards, Cloudflare, an internet security company, came along and wondered if I might like to partner with them in growing Asia. And I've always loved growing businesses in Asia, particularly with tech firms. And it was a really interesting opportunity to learn about security and the network as opposed to online media. So similar task of really taking a Silicon Valley firm and helping it grow quickly in Asia, but different kind of product. So a great opportunity for me to not only contribute, but learn. And I spent three years with them, which was terrific. During COVID, I came to the conclusion that it was time for me to move on to what I'm calling a Lisa 3.0. So having spent enough time in tech, I've learned to phrase my career as software. So 1.0 was the Boston Consulting Group and Financial Services. 2.0 was tech, Google, Twitter, Cloudflare. And 3.0, well, I'm, I'm still figuring out, but it is sitting on boards. I am sitting on two private boards, two public boards. Two of them are in Singapore, two are in Australia. And I wrote the book. I've tried my hand at teaching. I am mentoring a few people over, you know, very long term, an Afghan woman who's now in the U.S. and an Australian female athlete and then spending a lot of time having coffee with people talking about their careers and still figuring out what I want to do when I grow up. Eliza, you're always so fantastic. It's always about continuous learning and I'm actually looking forward to the Eliza 3.0 emerging. I think one thing I would also want to get your thoughts on, I guess over the past decade, there's actually been a big shift in the tech ecosystem where I know you're also an angel investor in the tech startups here in Asia Pacific. What are your thoughts on the evolution of the tech ecosystem in Asia Pacific? And where do you think that 
the ecosystem is currently heading towards? So I think there are a lot of things going on and it's super exciting. I really like what I am learning about the tech ecosystem. So one thing I see is that there's been a lot of change uh, in financial services. You know, in the years that I've been working in tech in Asia, we've gone from not having a lot of change in financial services to a huge amount of focus on fintech, lots of new ways to pay and move money. I think, you know, a number of countries here, particularly Singapore, have done a lot to create frameworks for new forms of financial services uh, so that people can establish crypto, blockchain, other forms of transactions and currencies in Southeast Asia, knowing that there's going to be some sort of framework here. I think one thing I've seen that's interesting is that when I moved back to Singapore, having been here in the 90s, but moved back in 2008 to the region, most of the tech firms here really just had sales and marketing in Asia. And now you've seen a lot of them as they've gotten bigger have really decided to put product and engineering in Southeast Asia as well. So that's a big change. I think we've seen some interesting things that are Asia first or Asia only. I think a lot of the breakthroughs in logistics technology have been driven in Asia, partly because of big demand created out of China. Another trend that I see that I find fascinating that's, to me at least, different in Asia is uh, group buying, which is not to say group buying hasn't existed elsewhere in a way you could say Sam's Club or Costco were part of that in the U.S., but the group buying where we're able to enable people who are in far-flung villages or didn't otherwise used to be able to access things to group together and buy, like Ping Duo Duo in China or Chili Belly in Indonesia, because of mobile technology, have, have been able to grow really quickly. So I think those are some of the trends that I see that are new and have changed. And to be honest, and I think you've seen this too, because I know we're in some of the same, same angel groups, just the deal flow, the volume is amazing. And I heard a podcast the other day with Orlando Bravo from Toma Bravo, which is one of the biggest PE firms in, in the world now. And he was saying that despite all the cash sloshing around and the fact that some people think, well, maybe some deals are priced really high right now because there's too much money chasing you know, the ideas that are out there. His view was the opposite. He said he's seeing so many good ideas. He still doesn't think there's enough cash out there, that the volume of new ideas seems to be actually increasing uh, geometrically. And he thinks there needs to be more money. So I thought that was an interesting perspective. Mm. I think it's pretty interesting that we are seeing so much deal flow within our own circles. I've been now pushed to really specialize in Web3 as such. But today, the main story of the day I want to talk to is about your new book, Don't Quit Your Day Job. So I got my first copy now on my table. I think when you announced it, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Amazon and get it quickly. So I want to start off by thinking on the first question because I started off as being an entrepreneur and I always made this comment that you can take a person off from being an entrepreneur, but you can never take the entrepreneur off the person. So I went from the entrepreneur side, walked over to the corporate world for the past decade, and I always wanted to quit my day job, you know, and go back and be a startup founder. Please don't tell my employer, oh, of course I'm joking. <laughs> so why should I not quit my day job? Well, first of all, I'm not sure how great the advice is since I didn't take it either, right? I quit a year and a half ago, 
And I had a funny exchange a couple weekends ago. I was at a lunch where most people are sitting on boards. And I turned to the woman next to me and said, are you still working? And she said, why, yes, I'm on boards and proceeded to tell me what board she's on. And I said, well, that's quite funny because when people ask me if I'm still working, I say, no, I sit on boards. So I'm not even sure what work is anymore, what our definition is. But in terms of quitting your day job, the title's a bit provocative and it was written for the time that we're in now of the great resignation or the great reshuffle. It doesn't really mean never quit your day job. I think there are lots of reasons to do it and we can come to those. The full title is don't quit your day job, six mind shifts to rise and thrive at work. And really the focus of the book is that most of us, not everybody, but most of us spend most of our lives working in an organization of some sort, a pretty big organization. And that could be academia, it could be healthcare or a hospital, could be tech firm, could be a bank, could be others in the corporate world. And it's really about getting in and staying in at those organizations if that's what you choose. And the fact that there are lots of ways to manage to make that work for you that don't involve quitting, but it definitely does not mean never quit. If you are really an entrepreneur at heart, and I know that runs in your family, you know, to be an entrepreneur, you may need to quit your day job if your day job isn't your, your startup. So please don't take that. Anybody who's listening that I really mean you should never, ever quit. There are times you need to quit because you're miserable. There are times you need to quit because you're in a bad situation. There are times you want to quit because there's a great opportunity ahead of you. So if the message is not don't ever quit, it's really here are great ways to make your life and your work work together so that you don't have to quit if you don't want to. You have an interesting title and it really inspired me to think about what are the mind shifts required. But maybe I want to dig a little bit deeper. What is the inspiration behind writing this book? Well, if I've learned one thing from my years in tech, it's that you have to scale. And I spent a lot of time going for coffee with people and, and chatting. Usually people come to talk to me either because I'm a woman or I'm older, or I've been in tech or all of those things. And Usually they come when they're at a crossroads in their career or when they're worried about something. They don't usually call me up to just say, hey, I got to tell you how great things are going. Although that's, that's pretty fun too. And the thing about having coffee is there still are only 24 hours in a day. I have been applying for 28 hours a day, I must say, but no one has responded. And uh, it only very occasionally when I fly from Singapore to the US, you know, I get a few extra hours. And so there's only so many coffees you can have and for people who know me, as you do, Bernard, they know that I don't even like coffee. I drink this very weak decaf latte. So if you think about limited hours in a day, limited times I can go for coffee, which I don't drink, and what I learned in tech about scaling, I thought, hey, maybe I should try to write this down. Now that I'm not working full time, one of the things I can do besides spending a bit more time with people talking about this stuff, which I love, is try to make it a bit more cohesive, think about the major messages, and then create a lot of examples that people can relate to and write it down. So that's, that's what inspired the book. I think one of the things that you already alluded to earlier is about the six mind shifts that you need to rise and thrive at work. But when you drive a little bit deeper down, 
What are the key themes of the book? Well, let me give you a couple, and I'm not going to share all six mind shifts because if I do that, then you don't need to read the book. And since I have written it, I'm hoping a few people will go out and and read it. So there's one big theme through the book is stamina and how to keep up your stamina. And that's probably because if, you know, we each have a superpower or something that's really helped us through our career. And I think if I had to really rank them for me, probably stamina is is my top one of just hanging in there almost no matter what, um, pushing as hard as I can to get the result that I want or the resources that I want. I'm smart enough or have learned enough over the years that, you know, I know there are times that you have to give up and actually letting go, but I will hang in there as long as I can trying to get what I need for my team or my clients. And so stamina is, is a really big one for me. And I think it's important. And to me, stamina is not just grit. Grit's important. You know, if you read a lot of the stuff from Angela Duckworth, but it's, and it's not just grinding it out. You know, that's, that's misery. I mean, it is work. Like we do get paid. So it's not, not every day is going to be fun. Not everything is going to be easy, but I think you want to enjoy work most days, most years, most jobs. And so stamina to me is perseverance, but also with enthusiasm, you know, finding a way that you can enjoy it, hang in there, but also enjoy what you're doing. So to me, that's a really important one. And I spend an entire chapter talking about how to create stamina, how to build more, you know, different tips for hanging in there. Lots of language around that. Then the second thing that I guess I would answer in response to your question, a big theme is you're in a relationship with your career, nurture it. I have found over the years that we've gone from, okay, work is a job. I'm just working because I, you know, need to earn money because I like to travel or I like to scuba dive or I have a family or I want to send my kids to private school or whatever it is. And then at some point we talked a lot about working for mission-driven companies. And many of us have been fortunate enough to do that, work for companies where we really believe in what they're doing. And then somewhere in there, there was also this theory that we could exercise all of our passions at work. And I think that happens to some people, but not for everybody. And that's a pretty high bar to set for work, that it fulfills all your passions. And if you think about it, for those of us who are in relationships with some sort of partner, you know, love relationship, or have been in them. Most of what you read is that you cannot expect all your needs to be fulfilled by one other person. So, you know, Bernard, I know both you and I are, are married and um, have wonderful spouses, but I, I would have to say mine doesn't fulfill every need of mine, nor do I of his, and I should never expect that. So why should I expect that of my career? you can't get everything from this one thing that you have a relationship with. You've got to have different ways to fill other needs. So there's a lot of discussion in the book about how, how you might do that so that you don't expect everything of your career and end up, I think, then disappointed in it. So who is the intended audience of the book? Maybe people who are starting off from their careers or people already in the midst of making career changes or moving along the way as well? So it's really intended for anybody who's going to work or has worked or is working, I guess has worked and wants to come back. I think if you're done career-wise, then, then maybe it's not something you want to read. So there are about three dozen people in the book whose stories relate to each of the mind shifts and then 
under each mind shift, there are a number of power perspectives and takeaways. And the people whose stories are told, obviously, I've thrown in a few of mine, but there are people from the ages of, I would say, 22 to mid-60s, all genders, lots of different nationalities, certainly not every nationality, but Latin American, European, American, Australian, Singaporean, Indian, you know, a few other Asian nationalities. So hopefully there's there's not one of each of these kind of people for each mind shift, but or each story. But the idea was to be relatable for most people in their careers. And my hope is that everyone who reads it will get one nugget that they can use now, you know, where a little light bulb goes off and they said, hey, this is really helpful for a situation I'm in right this minute. And maybe another one that will stick in their head and be useful in 10 days, 10 months, 10 years, where they think, hey, I, I read about this or remember Susie's example or Tim's example or Ning Fei's example, and I can use that now. So that's the goal. It's a, it's a light read. It's meant to be enjoyable. There are even a few laughs in it. I would say it's, it's about two and a half hours total reading. So I'm hoping that it's really accessible for lots of different kinds of people that can, you know, so they can get something out of it. It's a bit of a way of, of giving back. The author's profits are going to Vital Voices, which is a nonprofit that tries to get women in leadership globally, particularly in political leadership. So it's really just a small way of my trying to give back to the community after working for so long. So I do enjoy the book uh, because I took about six days to finish it. And one, one of the things I really liked it is that I can read each of the six mind shifts per day and really thinking about some of the stories that you talk about. So where do you draw the stories in the book from? Is it from people who talk to you about, people who you have seen their careers thrive and what are the sacrifices or maybe the trade-offs that they made in career? Most of the stories are people I know pretty well, people who've come to me to talk about their careers or whom I've gotten to know at various companies along the way. There are a few stories, you probably see I wrote it with a woman named Wendy Paris, who's a professional writer who helped me get some of the thoughts down probably more clearly than I might have on my own. And a couple of them are friends of hers. In a very odd way, one woman, Marla Stone, who we got a great story there, she's an academic, is a friend of Wendy's. But I actually went to high school with Marla and haven't been in touch with her for decades and was able to reconnect through this book, funnily enough. So they're mostly people I know, and they're basically, as I was thinking through each mind shift and each bit of advice, if you will, it was like, oh, where is a great story where I saw this work or, you know, where I tried to help somebody or where someone came to ask me and I know the outcome. And so that's where all those stories come from. I know this is your podcast and you're asking me questions, but am I allowed to ask you whether sure. there are any of the stories that, like if you had to pick one or two that stuck out to you, are you willing to share and why or what you liked about them? Mm, I think at the, at the start of the book when I was reading, I recall a story where you talk about you're trying to convince somebody to move from the Bay Area to Asia Pacific. And it was a question of a choice of career and to make it go for it. I think um, maybe just from my point of view, I have groomed many women leaders and I always find them that they always have the difficulty to choose between career and family. 
And this story just sort of made me think, well, what is the better way to help women leaders to thrive in their career workplace? So that's one story that I thought was pretty interesting. You want to tell the, also the ending of that story too? Well, I'm not sure which one you're referring to. There are a couple. There's one where there was a woman who wanted to move to Singapore. She was a class yes, player in right. San Francisco. Correct. And, and Sierra, and she was she was really focused on Singapore. And I didn't think we had a role for her in Singapore because she doesn't have any Asian language skills. And although you can work clearly work in Singapore only speaking English, as I do, we needed people to cover a lot of the other countries in the region. So I was able to convince her finally that Australia would be interesting and doable for her. But she hadn't thought about it as very exciting. And she went and she loved it. And she really thrived and and rose in the firm. During the time that she was in Australia, she went from being an account exec to a manager. And she was very happy. As it happens, she's now furthered her own adventure. This is not in the book. I could put it in the sequel, but she's moved, <laughs> moved to Europe. And gotten a further promotion. Wow. So she's, she's done really well. And she had a great sense of adventure. So that was, I really liked that. And and, and I think so. these are some of the interesting things when you think about career, right? It's not just about making choices about where to go, but also where you can actually, you know, enjoy doing the work and meeting people, interact and learn about the cultures. That also made me think a lot about the six mind shifts that you have. So one, one thing I, it never came up to me, and maybe you have implicitly embedded it in the book, does all the six mindset shifts that you've introduced are affected by culture? If so, how does one adapt them into these cultures? I mean, for example, you and I know Japanese and Korean culture are very distinct, very different from Southeast Asia. Th- that is definitely true. And I, although I've worked across all these countries, and one of the things I've loved most about having these regional jobs out of Singapore is trying to understand different cultures and how things, how people get things done. But the book probably is written from one main perspective and then it has kind of a mirroring effect. So the main perspective of the book is what do you as an individual want and need out of your career and how do you use that to rise and thrive? And to be honest, I think that that's reasonably general. You know, I'm not asking telling people in these books they should do things that would be unacceptable in a certain culture. So while there are, I guess, variances, I think people in Japan probably still work longer at each firm on average, maybe, than people in, say, Australia, the U.S. or the U.S., but even that has shortened in each country. So maybe they change less often or look outside less often. I'm not sure that the book is irrelevant from one culture to the next. I think it it kind of transcends them. And by using people from different cultures, I hoped to convey that. I think the second aspect that the book talks to, though not overtly, is during the great resignation or reshuffle or whatever we want to call it. And that is, you know, probably highest in the U.S., but definitely affecting other countries as well. Australia, keeps debating, you know, are we having a great resignation or not? Whatever you want to call it, lots of people are changing jobs and the job market's tight. So there's a lot of pressure on employers to keep the talent that they have and to recruit new talent. It's heavy competition. So if you say as a manager, leader, or employer, how do I look, take the opposite point of view, which is if this is what employees want, 
right? Or if this is what employees need, how do I provide that so that I stay with, they stay with my firm as opposed to leaving? And again, I think that goes across cultures. So, you know, one of the things you read a lot about right now, I think McKinsey's pointed this out, manpower studies pointed out that in addition to the flexibility that everybody's talking about, the idea I could work from home at least sometimes in jobs that allow it, it's less likely if you're a nurse or a waiter than if you're a tech worker. But if if we're going to do that, like how do we keep people feeling bonded to the firm and feeling in the know and feeling valued? Because in addition to that flexibility, the main reason that people cite for leaving and for not wanting to come back to the workforce if they haven't switched jobs or sitting it out for a little while are not feeling valued or cared about by the firm or not feeling recognized by their managers. And so those kinds of, the techniques to do that, the ways to recognize and thank people, the ways to show them that you're investing in them, for instance, by really doubling down on feedback and making sure that it is not just some sort of process-driven performance evaluation, but a really serious thinking of what is this employee wanting to learn and wanting to develop and how am I helping them get there? That's a way of keeping people in the firm. So I don't, it's not really written for the employers, but a lot of the stuff that talks about what you as an employee want or need, if you read it as a manager or a firm, what you're hearing is what do you need to do to keep these people? And since we are talking about the great resignation and every career change is a difficult endeavor for anyone to make. What's your advice for people who are in the midst of contemplating making a career switch or maybe trying something different than what they used to do, given that now you have so much flexibility in work? I have so much advice. Let me just try to pick a few. So one thing is, I find a lot of people perhaps overanalyze. So I like analyzing, and it's a great title, Analyze Asia. Nothing against analyzing, Bernard, but overanalyzing to the point of paralyzing yourself because you can't make a decision, that gets in the way. So there's a story in the book about a 22-year-old whom I helped figure out whether to take a job in San Francisco at a startup. She was interested. She thought she'd like it. She didn't think she could earn enough money. They couldn't afford to pay her more. She ultimately took it. She enjoyed the beginning. And then after a while, she was pretty miserable. There were some reorganizations. She ended up in a situation that she was really uncomfortable in. And to be honest, my first suggestion was she try to last at least a year. I thought that would be the right thing to do. She could learn a bit more. She really felt that she couldn't. And she went and did some interviewing and she got a job at a consulting firm called Huron that I was previously unfamiliar with, but looked up that looks really interesting. And she loves it. And so, you know, you could say, well, she made a mistake. She went to this first startup that she didn't like, and then she went to Huron. And so she should have just gone to Huron in the beginning. But both she and I think she wouldn't have gotten the job at Huron without this initial experience. And so she could have agonized, she could have kept looking. But the fact that she just took an action, did something for a while, and even though she thought, oh, you know, that wasn't the right thing for me, I think it helped propel her into where she is now. So particularly in the first half of your career, and, you know, most people working until they're like 55 or 60, that's probably up till you're 40 now. 
I think it's pretty easy to try something and then switch. People feel like it's not. And obviously, if you're in very specialized careers, I mean, I think if you have a law degree and you decide you want to stay in law, lots of people use the law degree and go somewhere else. If you're a specific kind of doctor or engineer, you know, moving isn't so easy. But if you're in general business, there are lots of skills you can continue to leverage. You know, if you're a good negotiator, you can use that in business development. You can use that in sales. If you're good at sales, you can go, you know, I, I ended up going from sales in consulting and financial services to sales and marketing and tech. You need to think about what you can leverage. So I think one message is don't agonize too much. I mean, you know, think about it a lot. Think about what you want and then go for it. I think another message is you probably have to pick one or two things at the most that you can switch. So I give an example in the book of a guy named Ning Fei who lives in Singapore, who I've known for a while because we went to the same university. He's much younger than I am and probably much smarter. And he wanted to switch from his government role to private sector, from project management to product management. He wanted to leave Singapore and go to the US. He wanted to switch industry to clean tech. And I think by the time I counted it, there were like four or five things he wanted to change all at once. And I think he's really bright and really personable. And I think that he could make those switches and still deliver for somebody. But my point to him was, I think most recruiters, even in a tight job market, are not going to hire you for something that's kind of five steps away from what you're doing now. It looks risky to them on paper, and they can probably find somebody who's done something a bit closer to the job role they have open. So why don't you prioritize, you know, what's most important to you? Like, is it most important to you to go to the U.S. right now? In which case you probably need COVID aside, which creates visa issues. But assuming those are gone, you could do similar job, but probably do it in the U.S. Or move from government to private and maybe make one switch where you're doing something similar to what you're doing now, but a little bit different. But you probably can't do all five. And, and he sort of knew that because he had been saying, listen, I'm, I'm having problems getting a job. And I was like, that's, that's why, because not because you're not good, but because that's too many switches at once. So indeed he, he picked something where he kind of was making one and a half switches. And after a year, he's now probably going to get that company to help him move overseas. And then there are kind of two more things he wants to do. And so he can do them gradually. So I know in a way it's disappointing if you're really keen and eager and you want to make all these changes at once, but sometimes it is a bit hard. And so thinking about prioritizing of all these things, what's top of mind for you. So that's advice number two. And these are in no particular order. And the third thing I think I'll share for here is sometimes you think you want to switch and everything looks better than where you are now because you're feeling stuck or you're feeling frustrated. And even when I was full-time in companies, and I still do this when I'm on boards, I tell people, and I used to tell my team, go and job date, you know, go find out what's out there. And that is a luxury that's different for your career than when you're in a partnership or a marriage, right? It's probably not so good even when you're a little bit annoyed with your partner or spouse to go out and do a lot of dating. I mean, everybody's got different arrangements, but for a lot of people that might upset somebody. But for jobs, I think you can go out and talk to other people See what's out there, because if you've got an employee who's disgruntled or feeling stuck or feeling like they're bored and there's nowhere to go, if they go out and talk to five or six other companies, they might come back and go, you know what? I actually love where I am and I'm staying here and I'm happy about it instead of 
unhappy about it. Or they might find something better, and then that's better better for them too. So I really think job dating or investigating is another really good thing to do as you're thinking about making that switch. So those are three that I will share. That's great advice. But then I think one thing that you have brought out is also the importance of building social capital. I think one thing I read in the book was that one should assemble their own personal board of directors. And I do have mine. And I'm, I'm always curious to, from your point of view, because you have a great network out there. How does one build that social capital? And how do they assemble that personal board of directors? Given that you, you have given a lot of advice to many people, from very young all the way to people in mid-career as well. Okay, so just to be clear for those who don't know, there's a fair amount of discussion in the business world, and, and I really like it, about having a personal board of directors. So if we think about corporates or startups, they tend to have a board of directors early on. If you're a startup, you'll probably have board members from the founders and the venture capital firms who have invested, and then over time, if you go public, that'll morph into a very diverse group of people whose main job is to hire and fire the CEO, but really who are there to help guide the company and who represent a diverse range of points of view. You know, you might have somebody who's a former CFO or accountant who's really can dig into numbers really quickly. You might have somebody who knows the particular industry really well. You might have somebody who's partnered with government a lot and really understands regulation and on and on. And so as you think about it as an individual, Some people have mentors. Some people don't develop mentor relationships. I think it is very important, and I talk separately in the book about making sure you have advocates or supporters at work. And that's something more than a mentor. That's somebody who's going to stick their neck out to support you. They might be somebody who helps you get promoted. They might be somebody who just helps you through a particular incident. But the board of directors says, listen, it's a hard ask to ask somebody to be your mentor. I think mentorships develop naturally. But it's hard to go up to somebody and say, will you be my mentor? Because that's asking a lot of them. And, you know, if you have somebody as a mentee, you really want to spend a lot of time with them, get to know them well. I think it's a big commitment. But going for coffee with somebody once a quarter, that's less of a big commitment, particularly if you have something in common or like each other or enjoy chatting. So a board of directors might, they might not know that they're your board, but they're just people who you think you could learn something from and who you want to talk to periodically. So as I've gotten older, my board has changed over time. And I don't think I thought about it very consciously till maybe the last decade. But for example, there's somebody I know in Singapore who's a really accomplished woman, a leader in many ways in her field who sits on a lot of boards. I see her as often as I can. We've built a friendship, but I originally asked her for coffee because I knew she knew tons about how boards work in Singapore, and I didn't, and I wanted to learn from her. I have another friend who's on my board who knows just everything about storytelling and narratives and how to position what you're trying to say. She'd probably do a much better job with this conversation than I am. And I go to her for a lot of help on how to do that and how to think about it. And she's younger, but I think she's better versed in it. And so I have lots of different people that I go to, and I think that board of directors that you mentioned is is really important. It's not the only social capital, but that's, I think, social capital primarily outside of your work, out of your specific job, that's important for you to build over time so that you get outside perspectives, if nothing else. You know, sometimes in your workplace, you get very 
locked into a certain way of thinking or a certain style. And it's important to get perspective from outside. And this is something that you came out of what you just said, right? Everyone out there seeks out for mentorship and help from more senior people. What should be the mental model for the person seeking mentorship out there? I think the mental model is really about making friends with people. I mean, they don't have to be your best friend, but having some sort of friendly overture to the person you want to get to know. I think it's very good if you have a specific ask to start off with. So if I were coming to you, Bernard, I'm lucky to already know you, but I might call you up and go, I am so keen to understand investing in Web3, and I know you know a ton about it. Would you be willing to spend half an hour explaining to me where are the best places to learn and how I should think about investing? You know, that's a good specific question. And in your case, because you do a lot of explaining to people about it, you might say, you know, I don't have time, but here's something great to read. And I think that's a perfectly acceptable answer. We can't all respond to everybody who calls us. Or alternatively, if you think I might be interesting, or if you've got a bit of time and you feel like talking about it, you might say, great, you know, let's meet at such and such a place and I'll, and I'll give you half an hour. And maybe if we get along, we get to know each other t- over time. And I don't think you should be at all put off that some people may say to you, I'm sorry, I really don't have time. That's okay. It's not personal. They might not have time. And, and so you move on. We talked about it just now. The past two years have changed many people in terms of how they view work. And it feels like, you know, everybody is now going back to work. What are your prescriptions for people thinking about making changes for their lives to going back to the offices? I mean, given that now you have a lot of free time and you're watching a lot, everyone going back to the usual order. I think flexible work is here to stay. What's the right prescription for us? Well, I'm not sure in, in my own goofy way, even though in theory I'm you know, not working full time, I don't have a lot of free time. But I guess I'm having more direction over what I, what I do day to day. Again, this comes back to, I do think we're in a great period where employees probably have more leverage than they've had for a long time. And so if you're switching jobs, you may be able to get something closer to your ideal or something you've been dreaming about that you didn't think you could get before. I read an article about new collar. I don't know if you've seen this where they're saying there used to be blue collar and white collar. And now there's new collar, which is primarily, I guess, blue collar switching to white, but basically people who thought that there were jobs they couldn't do or wouldn't be able to get trained to do are now being trained. And they gave an example of somebody who'd been working in retail who got an opportunity to go get training at Okta because Okta can't hire enough people and they were willing to train him on their technology in a way they mightn't have been before. So he, this person in the article was able to switch. So there is, I think, some of that right now. I guess the thing to do is, again, to prioritize what's important to you. If it's spending more time at home, great, argue for that flexibility. If it's more money, you know, in some cases you may have an opportunity to do that. I think, I think what's being talked about a lot now and something that, again, this is one that's got an employee side and an employer side is job crafting. I've heard of a lot of people who primarily like their firm, essentially like what they're doing, but they want something more. So I give an example in the book of a guy, not his real name, named Tim Liu. Although since the book is out, I've learned that there is somebody at Facebook. I'm sure that's not that uncommon of a name, but apparently there's somebody at Facebook named Tim Liu who sort of fits the profile of the 
person I described, but it is not the Tim Lewis Facebook. It's pretty funny on some of the ones that are disguised. I get these notes on LinkedIn. Is that so-and-so? Is that so-and-so? I'm like, I'm sorry. If I change their name, I'm not going to tell you, but it's, 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 it's fun to get these. And he was in a position at his firm where there was nowhere for him to go and he didn't want to leave, doesn't want to leave Singapore, but there was nothing else for him to do. So he was kind of bored. He thought about leaving the firm, but he didn't really want to leave the firm. So he went to the senior management and kind of said that and said, well, what can I do? And they said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, well, I want to learn more about business development and government relations. And so they, I guess I wouldn't call it exactly projects, but they, they let him participate in some things that were going on that were out of his usual purview, just so that he could learn and feel more fulfilled in his current role. And he's stayed and, and really enjoyed that. And so the, I think the, the typical name for that now is called job crafting. And that's probably another thing to think about doing as we change now. You know, are you, an, if you love where you are and you've already proven yourself, you know, maybe you don't want to leave. That comes back to don't quit your day job, but you have some flexibility to ask for some things, to learn things, to prepare you for whatever you believe your next step is and to keep you interested and intrigued. I have this last question that I wanted to ask you. What are the things that you wanted to put into the book, but you didn't include it, but maybe it's for future references, or maybe you think that maybe it's not the right context that maybe will prompt you to write your second book? Wow. I don't know if they're gonna, there's going to be a second book. One thing that I think would be fun to write about at some point, and I know that a bunch of my colleagues, not as in necessarily uh, people I worked with in the same firm, but people doing similar jobs, you know, would be about driving growth in Asia for global firms, because I think there's some fun and insightful stories there. I don't think there's anything that I should have put in the book, but didn't. It's only been out for about a week, and I've only reread it. Since it's been out, I've only reread it once and have only just been talking to people. So I expect that over the next few months, I will start thinking about, oh, I should have, you know, I, I should have thought about this or I should have told people to do X, but I, I'm not there yet. And I guess this would be the evolution of Elisa 3.0 and I probably will get you back to have another conversation again. Well, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I don't know where 3.0 is going and you, you know, it depends on the firm. I only listed 1.0, 2.0 and 3.0, but maybe I could do a 3.2, you know, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I don't have to do the whole jump next time. I can just do something smaller. Well, Elisa, many thanks for coming on the show. And I always look forward to speak to you in private or you know, anywhere you are and getting your advice on any matters. So in closing, I have two questions. My first question is any recommendations that have inspired you recently, like a book, you know, a movie or something else? That's a tough one. I did just read Bob Iger's book, The Ride of a Lifetime, about how he ran... Disney. I thought that was really interesting. I think he's an accomplished, humble leader from whom we could all learn something. So I might recommend that. I found it inspiring. So how do my audience find you? Uh, they look carefully. No, I have a website, alizanox.com. I'm on Twitter, alizanox. I'm on LinkedIn. Same. I have a somewhat unusual name. So people seem to be able to find me. Or you can look for me on the badminton courts in Singapore. Mm. And I'm pretty sure if they ask any tech executive in the region, they'll probably know you. <laughs> Past or <laughs> present. 
Okay, you can definitely find us on any podcast platform these days. And of course, tweet to us on your feedback at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. Once again, Eliza, thank you for coming on the show and talking about your new book. And I highly recommend everyone out there to go and get a copy of it and read it. And I look forward to speak to you again. Thank you so much, Bernard. It was really fun. Great to talk to you. Run it, run it.